one. What, uh, what I love about that bumper video that you guys may not know is that's all a home video that Jeff Dart shot from his iPhone when he was out four-wheeling around and doing stuff like that. So some of the other bumper videos we've shown with kids getting stuck between mattresses and, and in toilets, that was also Jeff Dart. So if you've seen those bumper videos, uh, you can thank Jeff Dart's iPhone for, for all that. Well, again, good morning. This morning I'm excited to continue and, and then also to wrap up the series we've been doing for the last several weeks called Stuck where what we're doing in this series is we're looking at events in the lives of Old Testament characters and, and seeing some ways they got stuck, things that, that impeded their following God in the ways that they should have. But we've also been looking at, at ways that they got unstuck because that's what we want to do. We don't want to just stay stuck, right? We don't want to just stay in the ruts that we find ourselves in. We want somebody to throw out a tow cable for us so that way when we get stuck in some similar ways in our own lives, we can find out how to get unstuck and follow God to continue forward, to get out of those ruts and make forward progress in following Jesus ourselves. So let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll, we'll move into what we've got for today. Heavenly Father, God, I, I do thank you for the privilege it is to worship you. God, may we never take that for granted as we, as we worship you through music. And now, Father, as we continue our worship of you through, through receiving and responding to your word, God, May we not approach this casually either, but Father, may we know that you are a big God who deserves to be worshipped. So Father, may we just continue that posture even now this morning. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, writing in the 20th century, uh, a pastor and an author by the name of A.W. Tozer, he said something that, that captures my attention every time I hear this quote. So I wanted to get this quote on your radar screens as well because it is, it is that powerful. A.W. Tozer said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so if we if we think about it, there, there's a question that's implicit in that statement that, that I want to ask all of us this morning, including myself. So, so how do we think about God? What comes to your mind when you think about God? What images come to mind? What words do you associate with God? And, and my guess is that if, if, if you and I were going to go out and have coffee at, at Starbucks or Scooters or wherever over the course of this next week, and if, if we talked about this question over our coffee, I would learn and you would learn that we've all got opinions about this question. We all answer this question. Something jumps to the mind as we reflect on who God is. Some common pictures of God that are probably represented by those of us in this room are maybe that, that, that you think God is like this doting grandpa or he's, or he's an authoritarian policeman. Maybe he's an angry and a vindictive tyrant. Or maybe you'd say that God is like a disinterested boss where you stay away from him, he tries to avoid you, and that's how things work best. A lot of us in this room are trying to line up our view of God with what we discover about him in the Bible. So, so there's a lot of us that are, that are there. And then, then I know that in a group this size, there, there are some of us that are questioning whether God even really exists. And here's why this is a big deal. It's because the way we answer this question about who God is it very quickly sends out ripples into our lives. The way we answer this question about who God is, it, it is going to very directly impact who we see ourselves to be, right? How we behave, 
what we do, what we don't do, how we relate to God or how we don't relate to God. And so here's where things start to tie in with this series that we're in. You see, if, if, if we have a wrong view of God in our minds, and if we relate to God, that, that image of God, that false idea of God in that way, we can get stuck very easily. A handful of years ago, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were in a movie together where they played a, a married couple who were also spies working for competing agencies. What, what made the movie interesting, what, what, what the, the catch was, they didn't know that the other person they had married, though, was the spy that was working for a competing agency. They thought they had married the other person's cover. And so, so as in every spy movie, their cover was that they were a successful business person who traveled a lot and was always on call, you know, and, and worked too much, probably. And so, so if your spouse is, is a workaholic and is always on call and travels a lot, they might be an international spy, you know? But, 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 but their relating to this false idea of each other led, led their marriage to get stale, the movie got, the, the characters got stuck, and the movie takes it from there. And, and what I want us to see is that, is that part of the reason they were stuck in their situation is, again, just because they were relating to a false idea of who they thought the other person was. And if we do that with God, if we, if we relate to who we think God is rather than who he really is, we're going to get stuck too. What is, what is so cool to know, though, for all of us this morning, is, is that God isn't trying to fool us into thinking he's somebody he's not. He's not putting up a cover for us. God makes it very clear who he is. He has taken the initiative to let us know who he is and how we can relate to him. You see, the, the collection of books that make up this one book that we call the Bible, one of the common threads that runs all throughout these books is that God is eager to show us who he is, who he is, and how we ought to relate to him. And so throughout God's word, we, we learn a ton about who God is. We learn that he's the creator. We learn that he's good. And then words that we use at Brookside a lot are that he's holy and loving and just. And this morning we see something very specific about who God is that we've also got to factor in as well. This morning we see that God has no equals. The God of the Bible, the God who we were just singing to, God has no equals. God is unmatched in his greatness. And, and the thing that gets me so excited about this is because as we lift up God and put him in his spot, that should do something in us. That should naturally draw out a certain response in us. Not too long ago, I saw a quote somewhere on Twitter, or, or I heard somebody say it, but, but the quote went something like this. It said, nobody is thinking about themselves when they're looking at the Grand Canyon. I love that because we all understand it. The greatness of the Grand Canyon captures our hearts, and we are compelled to respond in a certain way. And that's what I want to do this morning. This morning, I, as we talk about God's unmatched, unequaled, unparalleled greatness, I want this greatness to capture our hearts, and I want it, I want it to draw us into responding to God in worship and faith and obedience. And so, so let's, move, let's move ahead into 1 Kings. That's where we're going this morning. And, and as we move into this passage, I want us to keep our eyes out for everything we learn about who God is 
and what that means for us. So, so the place we're going first this morning is 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In these next couple verses I'm going to read, we get introduced to a couple characters that will carry us into the passage we'll be spending even more time on a couple chapters later. And we also get introduced to some really important background and setting material that we've got to factor in as we talk this morning. So, so 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 is where we're at. We meet this guy by the name of Ahab. Verse 29 says that in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, the son of Omri became, uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And so right out of the chute, the, the, the name on Ahab's name tag is, is bad guy, right? He, he's done more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And then the next couple of verses get specific on what that looks like. Verse 31, or, uh, verse 31 says that he not only considered it trivial to commit the sons of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and to worship him. Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and, and then again, and he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So, so we see specifically what Ahab is doing wrong. He considers it trivial to commit the sins of this previous king, Jeroboam. He takes sin casually, sin that breaks God's heart. He, he approaches very lightly. And then, and then he very intentionally and very cons- consciously institutionalizes idolatry in the nation of Israel. This nation who had been rescued by Yahweh, the God of Israel, he introduces other gods. That's what this language of, of an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal is getting at. That's what this language of Asherah pole is, is talking about. That is all just underscoring the fact that Ahab is bringing idolatry in in a very focused way. And then in verse 34, we see how this sinful, idolatrous decline had started to seep into the wider culture as well. In verse 34, it says, In in Ahab's time, so under his leadership, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. What, what this verse is saying is, is that within this environment, under Ahab's leadership, child sacrifice gains a foothold. That's what this verse is talking about when it talks about Heel of Bethel pursuing construction projects at the cost of his firstborn son and his youngest son. That, that's most likely talking about him thinking that the best way to advance these construction projects is, is with the blessing that can only be achieved through child sacrifice which really is no blessing at all, we know. But, but so this is, this is a sad state of affairs that, that Ahab has initiated in, in Israel. And then we go to chapter 17, verse 1. If, if Ahab is the antagonist in this, in this story, chapter 17 introduces us to the protagonist. We meet Elijah. There we read that, that, that Elijah the Tishbite, from Tishba in Gilead, he says to Ahab, so he goes up to this, this king, 
And he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. And so this contrast between Ahab and Elijah could not be stronger. Where, where Ahab is doing very active things to subvert the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Elijah is doing things to very clearly set himself apart as a spokesman for, for the God of Israel. Elijah comes right out and says that Yahweh is the one that he serves, the one that he worships. The, the very name Elijah, it means my God is Yahweh. So, so every time Ahab spoke the name Elijah, he was reminded of his idolatry, that he was veering a different direction than he should have been as the king of the nation of Israel. And so if, if, if Ahab is idolatrous and pluralistic, we see that Elijah is, is loyal to Yahweh and exclusively, exclusively devoted to him alone. And then we see Elijah throw down some fighting words in, in, chapter, in chapter 17, verse 1. When, when he says that, that as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, he says there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, those are fighting words. Because you see, Baal, this god, that Ahab was wanting people to worship, he was the god of fertility and rain. And so when Elijah says, hey, there's not going to be any rain until, until Yahweh says so, those are fighting words on, on Baal's own turf, in Baal's area of expertise. And so Elijah says, we'll, we'll see who's God, right? Let's start with rain. There's not going to be any until Yahweh, my God, the true God, says so. So the showdown is on, but the showdown has to wait. Because the very next verse, in verse 2 of chapter 17, we read that, that God takes Elijah away, even out of the country of Israel, for about three years. There's three years of drought where Elijah and Ahab don't even meet face to face. So, so three years pass where this is going on. And then so let's fast forward a chapter and a half, to chapter 18, verse 17, to this reunion where we see Ahab and Elijah again meet face to face after these three years of drought, after these three years of absence from each other. Here's, here's what chapter 18, verse 17 says. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And then then this next verse I want us all to pay attention to. So I'm going I'm to press pause after reading verse 21, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, because this is where things get, get huge. This is where we need to be dialed in. So verse 21, Elijah went before the people, these representatives of all of Israel, these 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah's probably talking to a group maybe about this size. And look at what he says. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And then I love how verse 21 ends. But the people said nothing. 
This verse is where we see that the people are stuck. They're, they're wavering between two opinions. The English Standard Version, another version of the Bible that I know a lot of you read, it says the people are limping between two opinions, between Yahweh and between Baal. You see, in other words, this, this isn't the, the people honestly and prayerfully considering which God authentically deserves their worship. They're not even-handedly looking at things saying, well, well, who deserves our allegiance? This isn't an honest seeking after God. No, this is, this is pluralism. This is syncretism, to use a really big word. They're, they're blending the two worships. You see, they're not deciding who to be involved with. They're involved with both. And so, so when we say the people are stuck in neutral, that's probably even too generous of a way to say it. You see, by, by allowing any other gods to come alongside Yahweh, the God of Israel, the people of Israel are breaking the first commandment, which they, which they should have all had memorized, right? That they should have no other gods besides Yahweh, besides the, the, the true God of Israel. The people aren't stuck in neutral. They're stuck in disobedience. They're stuck in idolatry. They're stuck in a very domesticated version of God where they're in control of him rather than sitting under him and submitting to his rule over them. And so, and so because Elijah cares so much about God and because Elijah cares so much about God's people, he pushes the people to decision. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. And and I wonder if Elijah's thinking, this should, be an easy, this should be an easy decision, folks. You know, don't forget you're Israel. You're, you're the nation that God delivered from the gods of Egypt hundreds of years ago through the Red Sea, through all these plagues and miracles and signs and wonders. We should know who's God, Israel. Or, or, or if that's not enough, remember the last three years where the God of, of rain, Baal, has been strangely absent and powerless to bring rain, these three years of drought, Israel, we should know who's God. Yahweh is God. If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is, is God, follow him. But the people were silent. And, and here's where this story intersects with our lives so, so much. Here, here's where I want us all to pay attention closely. Because Elijah knew that nothing compares with God. But that, that truth that doesn't mean nothing competes with God. Just because nothing compares to God, it doesn't mean nothing competes with God. There's plenty that competes with God in our lives. You see, this statement was true in 1 Kings chapter 18, and this statement is true today, right now, in the 21st century. We may not bow down to physical idols, but there are plenty of things that compete for our allegiance and our desires. There are plenty of things that compete with God for our worship. You see, the, the reality is we are all worshipers. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, we, we don't bow down physically to other idols. Worship is, worship is a much broader thing than just singing songs on a Sunday morning. It involves that, but it's broader than that. Worship is much broader than just physically bowing down to something. You see, worship is a posture of our heart. All of us in this room organize our lives around something. All of us do. All of us in this room have ultimate desires that drive what we do. All of us in this room have our hearts bent towards something. 
And, and the reason for this is because we were created by God to worship. That's his design. We were created by God to worship him. He should be the someone we organize around. He, he should be the someone that our hearts are tilted towards. But when they're not, when we're not worshiping God, it's not like someone can take the worship spigot of our lives and just turn it off. That's, that's me turning the worship spigot off, by the way. Um, no, you, you see, our, our worship valve cannot be turned off. It can only be redirected to other things. So, so let's say I have this can of pop or bottle of soda, depending on what you call it, and, and it, it had been unopened, but, but I've been shaking it up, or one of my boys has been shaking it up. We know what's going to happen when I twist off that bottle cap, right? It's, it's kind of how carbonation and rapid motion work. It's the way it's designed to work that, that if I open up that pop bottle and twist off the lid, that, that soda is going to come spewing out. And then we've all been in that situation where, where suddenly we, we know this pop is spewing out over us. And so we can either sit there and let it get our shirt and our pants wet, or we can just redirect it, right? We can point it away from us to somebody else. You know, we can do that. Or we can find a sink or, or a piece of ground where it can, where it can get that wet instead. We, we can't shut that off. We, we can't make the soda bottle stop doing that. We can only redirect it. And in the same way, we are all worshiping something. We're, we're designed to overflow in a certain direction. We can't change that fact. But we can channel where it's pointed. So the, the, the question is, is the, is the channel of our worship, is the overflow of our worship, is it pointed towards the true God or is it pointed towards anything else? And if our worship is directed at something other than God, we're stuck because all those other gods leave us empty. They, they leave us still searching for meaning. They leave us still parched for satisfaction. And so, so how do we get unstuck if we're worshiping other gods, if we've fallen into some of these competing idols? Let me give us two ways to get on track with worshiping God. One thing is, is simply to identify the things that compete with God in your life. This is where we've just got to look at those things that are unique to me and unique to you that tempt us away from following God. Here are a few questions that can start to reveal what you're worshiping. You can ask yourself, what do I desire most? When I'm by myself and, and my mind is free to dream, where does it go? What sorts of things am I convinced that I need to make myself happy? A second question is, is what do I most depend on for security and fulfillment? When, when I've had a rotten day or a rotten week, or I am consistently frustrated because things just aren't going well in whatever sphere of my life, who do I turn to to cope? What do I turn to to cope? In what things do I find the greatest satisfaction? And then a final question. It's a two-parter. Both parts of this is important. Who am I performing for and why? Who am I performing for and why? When, when you're at work or at home or doing whatever hobby you like to do, who, whose eye are you trying to catch? Who are you trying to please? And, and the thing is, even if you say the answer is God, which is a great answer, by the way, that's the right answer, ultimately, 
we're, we're playing for an audience of one, we still have to answer the why question. Why are we trying to get God's attention? Why do we want to perform for him? Is it to earn his favor? Or is it because he has already shown us favor? And we are very gratefully responding in faithful obedience to how he's shown us grace. So, so we need to identify the things that compete with God in our lives. And then a second thing we need to do to get on track with true worship is, is we need to put things in their proper order. So once we've identified the things that compete, we need to arrange them in the right order. There's this guy by the name of Augustine that lived in the 4th century. He was all about this thing called disordered loves. Where he said, our, our problem isn't that we love the wrong things. Our problem is that we love things in the wrong order. Right? And so, so here's what I mean by this. Certainly there, there are some things in our lives that we just need to abandon and leave behind. For those of us that are caught in addiction and sinful behaviors and destructive habits, we need to start the very slow and very difficult but very real process of walking out of those and just leaving those things behind. But, but I found that in my life and in the lives of a lot of people I talk to, the things that compete most for our attention with God are the good things. There are things like security and meaning and purpose and family. Those are good things. We don't want to abandon those. But what's, what's wrong with it is when good things become ultimate things. That's when we cross the line into idolatry. That's when our loves get disordered. And so, so these desires for family and security and lots of other things, they're not bad. We don't abandon them. But what we do is we subordinate them to the greater and better rule of God in our lives. And then even as we pursue these other things, it is always within and under the reign of God. And so, so Elijah presses the people towards decision. He says, if, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. The people are silent. Let's, let's go back to 1 Kings 18. Let's pick up our story there and continue reading to see how things play out. So, so what happens? So verse 22 then Elijah says to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets, so get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of, the Lord, uh, of, of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he's God. So, so, so there's the wager, right? Then all the people said, what you say is good. So verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. For hours they're doing this. Baal, answer us, they cried. But there was no response. No one answered. And they, they, so, so they, so they upped their game. They, so they started dancing around the altar they had made. So at noon, Elijah goes middle school boy on them. And he begins to taunt them. Shout louder, he, he says. Uh, surely he's a god, right? Perhaps he's deep in thought. Perhaps he's busy. Some translations get that a little bit closer. They say, perhaps he's in the bathroom. It's kind of what that's getting at, you know? Perhaps he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. 
must be awakened. So, so they listened to him, which is great. So they shouted louder, you know, and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying. Their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. They have been at this all day, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So here at the end of verse 29, we, we, we can imagine this exhausted group of Baal prophets who have been spending themselves and cutting themselves, and they've gotten crickets. They, they've gotten nothing. As I was studying this passage, one guy had this great line where he said, he said, the only thing more deafening than the shouts and the noise of the prophets of Baal is the silence of their God. Wow. God has no equals. And then Elijah gets his turn. Verse 30. Then Elijah says to all the people, come here to me. So they get up out of their bleachers, you know, watching the, the prophets of Baal, and they go and watch what Elijah's about to do. Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Okay, let, let's, let's handicap this a little bit more. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he orders, and they do it a third time. So, so things are soaked at this point. There's water dripping everywhere. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, he prays, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And then catch this worship language that he says, and that you are turning their hearts back again. You are tilting their hearts towards you again. And then verse 38, and then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. So there's this patch of charred earth before this group of, of a thousand people where they have seen this showdown between Yahweh and Baal. And they've seen who is more powerful. And so how do the people respond? When the people saw this, fail, they fell down on their knees, they fell prostrate. And they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The thing that's so noticeable about this whole passage as I've been reading it and rereading it is, is that everybody in this passage is stuck except for Elijah. Ahab is stuck in his sin and his defiant leadership. The prophets of Baal are stuck in, in their silent God. The people are stuck in neutral, wavering between their two opinions, but not Elijah. Why? I think the answer is because Elijah had a big view of God. 
You see, what Elijah's doing flows directly out of who he thought God was and how he thought God would act. Elijah knows God has no equals. And that's what drove him to take these steps that we see him taking here. So, so here's the lesson that I want all of us to see. A big view of God, it leads to bold obedience for God. A big view of God should lead to bold obedience for God. So, so if you feel stuck and neutral, maybe the simplest way to start to get traction is to return to a very big, very robustly biblical view of who God is. To, to return to these great truths like God is our creator. God has a purpose for what he's doing. God is pursuing us individually and, and his broken creation to restore it. These are the sorts of truths that should jumpstart us into gear. Um, my, my guess is that, that, that reading this story, there's, there's a certain percentage of people here this morning that are saying, well, well, if I saw God work like that, I would start to take his claim seriously. If I saw God work in an identical way, then, then I'd think that he's big and worthy and better and deserving of my worship. Let me say two things in response to that. First, let me just encourage you to keep your eyes out for the ways God is working in you and around you. You see, you see even though God may not send fire, that doesn't mean he's absent from your life. The, the biblical view of God is that he is actively working in us and around us in ways that, that we may not even be aware of. Let me suggest that even you being here this morning is evidence of God in your life. So, so keep your eyes out for the ways God is working. But a, but a second thing I'd say is, is I'd agree. I'd admit that we may not see God work in identical ways like we see him work in this passage. I've, I've yet to be grilling and to have this fireball come down from heaven and ignite the charcoal. Because we don't cook with gas at the Weeby house, right? We cook with, we do it right. We do, we do charcoal. I have yet to see God do that. I have never seen God drop a fireball from heaven. But let me suggest that, that even though God may not work in identical ways, I think he's worked in a better way. Because instead of sending a fireball from heaven to consume an altar, what, what if God sent his son from heaven to take my place on an altar of sacrifice? You see, as we keep reading this book, we discover that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was sent from heaven by God to take our place, to, to die in our place for our sins on the cross. So, so we have plenty of evidence to say God has worked in better ways for us. So, so God has worked for you. God is working in you and around you. All of these things should motivate us to take bold steps of obedience in response to what God has done and is doing. Well, let's return to where we've started with that quote from A.W. Tozer, where we see that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This morning we've learned a little bit more about what should be coming to mind when we think about God. Yahweh has no equals. We, we've seen how that deserves our complete allegiance, our exclusive worship. That the reign of God should be what we fall under. And all the good things in our lives that we're doing and pursuing fall underneath that. We, we've seen that because God has no equals, 
we should be responding to him with, with very faithful and sometimes bold steps of faith and obedience. And so, so Elijah was a man just like us. And a big view of Yahweh captured his heart and compelled him to obey in some, in some noticeable ways. Brookside, we serve that same God Yahweh served, or the, e- Elijah served. He's still God over us today. By, by God's grace in our lives, may he capture our hearts in a similar way. And may he, may he increasingly and continuously motivate our own faith and obedience. Let me pray for us and the worship team will come back up and lead us in the last couple songs. Heavenly Father, God, we, we, we acknowledge your greatness. Father, we, we imagine Elijah standing before us saying, if, if Yahweh is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And so, so Father, now even in the stillness of our, of our own seats, God, for those that you're doing something in their hearts, drawing them to yourself, Jesus, may we very personally, but very intentionally and very consciously say, I choose to follow God. I choose to follow Yahweh. I choose to follow Jesus. And so, Jesus, may this big view of God drown out other things that compete for your attention, and may it lead us to faithful obedience because of who you are. You are worthy, Lord. We confess that and proclaim that today. Amen.